Thanks, Marika. Well, good morning, church. My name is Stephen, uh, and I serve as the youth pastor here at Oasis Church. Over the past few weeks, we've been going through a series in Matthew that we've called, Who is Jesus? So far, we've looked at the reason why Jesus healed people. We've, looked, we've explored the cost of following Jesus. And last week, Adam pointed us to the supreme authority that Jesus has. This morning, we're going to be looking at the question, why did Jesus come? Uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to keep it open to Matthew chapter 9 as we deep dive into it. A man some of you may know, especially if you're into the Beatles, uh, George Harrison is quoted as saying, the purpose of life is to find out who am I, why am I here, and where am I going? The famous Russian author Leo Tolstoy echoes similar questions. He asks, what am I, where am I, and why am I here? These are some big questions that people often spend their lives trying to find the answers to. And this morning, we're honing in particularly on the question, why am I here? Some people can spend many hours having conversations or lost in thought considering the deep and philosophical responses to this question. Meanwhile, others might be like the singer Meatloaf, whose song Everything Louder Than Everything Else says, who am I, why am I here? Forget the question, someone give me another beer. Now, someone who didn't spend hours and hours, day after day, contemplating this question, why am I here, was Jesus. He knew very clearly why he had come. And in our passage this morning, the Pharisees, some of the religious rulers of, at the time, were confused. In this passage, they're confused as to why Jesus was hanging out with a less than reputable crowd and we see Jesus' response to them in verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I think my job this morning is rather easy. Why did Jesus come? He came to save sinners. Great. Question answered. We can all go home, right? If only it was that simple. Within today's passage, Matthew points out for us three groups or types of sinners whom Jesus had specifically come to save. But he also clarifies one group whom he hasn't come to save. And so we're going to start with that group this morning, a group that I've called the righteous sinners. 
Now, that might seem like a bit of an, an oxymoron, a contradiction. How can a sinner be called righteous or a righteous person a sinner? Aren't the two mutually exclusive of each other? In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. He continues a bit later, writing, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Did you catch that? All have sinned. There is no one righteous. Like it or not, we're all sinners. However, there are those who might think or pretend that they are righteous. They think they're doing pretty well or that they're not really that bad. In Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees. But it's a trap that any of us could quite easily fall into. The Pharisees kind of kept to themselves, thinking they were the ones with all the answers. In their self-sufficiency and in their pride, they had forgotten the very basics of who they were supposed to be as God's people. In Matthew 9, Jesus rebukes them telling them to go and learn what it means for God to desire mercy, not sacrifice. Effectively, in reading their Bible, in praying daily, in going about their daily lives, they had neglected to love the people around them, the people in their community. Sure, maybe they looked out for the people who were just like them, but they neglected those who didn't fit in with them. They had neglected to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with their God. Church, let us not be caught in the same trap as the Pharisees. Let us not be caught out as, as sinners claiming to be righteous yet neglecting the very heart of what it means to be God's people, what it means to be followers of Jesus. If we live like the Pharisees, then we miss the mark. We miss what it means to be God's people. We miss the truth of the gospel message. And maybe, like the Pharisees, we might just miss who Jesus really is. We might just miss why Jesus really came. So if Jesus hadn't come to save righteous sinners like the Pharisees, well, what kind of sinners had he come to save? Well, in this passage, we see that Jesus came to save outcast sinners. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Of all the people Jesus could have possibly called to follow him, he calls Matthew, a tax collector, someone considered a traitor to his own people. 
Matthew was a Jew, and yet he had chosen to be on the payroll of the Romans, the oppressors of the Jewish people. He was likely in this job because he was greedy. Jewish tax collectors had a reputation for charging, for ripping off their own people when calculating the tax payments so they could line their own pockets. There probably weren't many scummier or looked down upon roles that someone could have had. The Pharisees would have been wondering why on earth would a Jewish religious teacher waste any time on someone so far gone? But in this passage, we see that Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, and he does immediately. The next thing we know, well, Matthew is hosting Jesus and his disciples for dinner, along with a bunch uh, of other tax collectors and people Matthew records as sinners. In other words, people who didn't follow the laws that the Pharisees had put in place, but also people who didn't follow the laws of the Romans or the Jews as a general society either. These people were considered religious outcasts by the Pharisees and social outcasts by the rest of respectable society. To share a meal with these outcast sinners was an unthinkable act for the Pharisees. What was Jesus doing? However, when Jesus overhears their question to his disciples as to why he is eating with these people, he is quick to respond. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Effectively, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, look, you're the ones who think you've got it all sorted. Don't worry, I haven't come for you. I haven't come to hang out with the in crowd. I've come for those who have been cast out. I've come for those who have been pushed to the edge of society. I've come to save, they, save those who have been made into outcasts. In the kingdom of God, they are no longer outcasts. They are loved by God, just the same as anyone else who puts their faith in me. C.T. Studd, a missionary and English cricketer, said this, or wrote this. He wrote, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And this is exactly what, what we see Jesus doing when he sits down to eat with Matthew and his mates. We see that Jesus has come to save outcast sinners. But Jesus also came to save desperate sinners. While he's having dinner with Matthew and his mates, Jesus is interrupted by a synagogue leader who comes in and kneels before him. Now, this is an incredibly humbling posture 
that the synagogue leader puts himself in. He is a person of status within society. There are very few people before whom he should be kneeling down before. His posture and his pleading were more like that of a servant before their master. And this highlights just how desperate he is as he comes to Jesus to find a solution to a problem or an issue that is troubling him. Now, let's not forget whose house he's come to. He's come to Matthew's house, a tax collector's house. And who are the people gathered around the table along with Jesus? Well, there's other tax collectors and sinners as well. And then you've got his peers, the Pharisees, who are watching on and observing what's happening. They probably thought he had lost the plot. But this synagogue leader ignores all proper protocols, and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. Why? Well, his daughter has just died, or is near enough to death that it's basically the same. Matthew isn't exactly aiming for the finer details in these encounters. He doesn't even name the synagogue leader, who we know to be Jairus from Luke 8, and also from Mark's gospel. Rather, Matthew seems to be emphasizing the desperation that Jairus has to see his daughter healed. Bible commentator R. Kent Hughes says, we must not mistakenly think Jairus had become a follower of Jesus or that he was a man of great faith. The simple fact was he was desperate. He had heard of Jesus' miracles, maybe had even seen some and possibly had talked to some who had been healed. He was not sure about Jesus, but Jesus was his only chance. Well, in response to Jairus' desperate plea to save his daughter, Jesus rises and goes with him. And along the way, he encounters another person who is desperate to be saved. This time, it's a woman who has, been, who has had an issue of bleeding for 12 years. She's been to the doctors. They've been unable to help her. It's likely she's spent all of her income in trying to find some cure, and nothing has worked. According to Jewish law, a woman who had her regular flow of blood was considered unclean for seven days. And if it continued longer than that, then she was deemed unclean for the entirety of that period, which in this case had been 12 incredibly long, incredibly isolating years. Can you imagine such a life? Can you imagine being cut off from your family and friends for being unclean? No one dares touch you because in touching you, you would make them unclean as well. In joining the crowd around Jesus and in reaching out to touch his cloak, 
This woman is breaking countless cultural and religious rules and barriers. She is so driven by her desire to be made well, to be made whole again. She reaches out, and the moment she touches the hem of Jesus' cloak, she is healed. And she knew it immediately. And Jesus knew it too. However, instead of being outraged by her audacity to act in such a way, which would have been the response of any other of the Jewish leaders, instead of being outraged at what she has done, Jesus responds with grace and love. In verse 22, Jesus simply yet lovingly said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. There's something incredibly powerful about the way Jesus acknowledges this woman's desperation and faith in him. Tanya Johnson is a writer for the Risen Motherhood website, and she writes about Jesus' response to this encounter, uh, but according to the Luke 8 uh, version, and she writes, Jesus stops and looks for her. He asks for her. He knows that even more than physical healing, what this woman needs is to be looked in the eyes and cherished. She needs Jesus to pronounce her beautifully clean and forgiven. She needs to be called his daughter. She needs to be seen, really and truly seen. Jesus doesn't condemn the bleeding woman for her brokenness, even though her touch made him ceremonially unclean. Instead, he gives her exactly what she needs to walk from their encounter, not just physically stronger, but stronger in spirit. Author and speaker Rebecca McLaughlin points out that there are all sorts of messy and vulnerable things that come with being a woman. And in this encounter with Jesus, she highlights the fact that we see Jesus embrace those things in their entirety. Just as we see there Jesus' total embrace of any of us in our greatest weakness. It is in this woman's moment of greatest weakness that she comes to Jesus as a desperate sinner and he saves her. Continuing on to Jairus, the synagogue leader's house, they arrive to all the commotion that accompanied the death of a person. In that day, professional musicians and mourners would have been paid to acknowledge the death. And there they were, creating a racket that Jesus promptly ignored as he went into the house with the parents and a select number of his disciples. When he gets to the room where the girl is laid out, Jesus breaks with tradition yet again. A dead body, according to Jewish law, was unclean, and anyone who touched that body also became unclean. But that didn't stop Jesus. In verse 25, we're told that Jesus took the dead girl by by the hand, and she got up. What an absolute shock. What an incredible miracle those watching 
had witnessed. Jairus' desperate faith in Jesus resulted in his daughter being raised from the dead. In these verses in Matthew 9, we, we've seen two accounts of desperate sinners who come to Jesus in their weakest moments, in complete disregard for the religious or cultural norms of the day, and in response, we see Jesus save them by working two incredible miracles. One occurs without a single word being uttered, and the other shows the authority that Jesus has over death itself. Why has Jesus come? He's come to save sinners, outcast sinners, and desperate sinners. Well, in the next section, we see that Jesus had come also to save blind sinners. As Jesus went on from Jairus' home, two blind men start following him, and they start calling out, have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us, son of David. They might be blind, but their hearing is totally fine. They've heard about what Jesus has been doing, and they've made the connection as to who he is. This is not just some good teacher going around. But this is the son of David, the Messiah, the promised one from the line of King David who would rule God's people and deliver them, save them from their trouble. Now, perhaps this is why Jesus went indoors. Maybe he didn't want these men to be shouting these things loudly in the streets in full view of everyone as his time to be fully known had not yet come. But even though they're blind, these men manage to follow him indoors. Now, it's interesting to consider what it is that they wanted from him. The obvious thing would be healing from their blindness, right? But that's not exactly what they ask for. What is their cry? They cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. Is that because they just wanted healing? Or in crying out for mercy, are they actually confessing and repenting of sin? Do they actually recognize that they have a greater need than mere physical healing? Adam reminded us last week that Jesus hadn't come just to heal people's physical ailments. More importantly, he had come as God's instrument of mercy to forgive sins and save sinners. In verses 29 to 30, we see that Jesus does indeed heal them physically from their blindness. And after having done so, he gives them a warning. In verse 30, he says, see that no one knows about this. Now, there's a little bit of debate around why Jesus will say this sometimes after performing miracles and not at other times. Uh, commentator Douglas O'Donnell states that Jesus is not looking for the fanfare that comes with the power to heal. And more importantly, he does not want the crowds and his disciples to misunderstand the nature of his kingship. 
He is the son of David, but unlike David, and nobody will get this until after the resurrection, he has not come as a military warrior, but as a sacrificial lamb. He is the son of David, but also the suffering servant. O'Donnell goes on to say, I actually think Matthew includes this verse as a subtle rebuke. For when blind, they see. They see in whom they are to have faith, what they are to ask for, and how they are to approach Jesus. But once they see, they stop living by faith, which is always manifested by obedience to Christ's commands, however countercultural and counterintuitive some of those commands may be. So perhaps the point of verse 31 is that it is better to be blind and obedient than to see and disobey. Well, this miracle, the healing of these two blind men is then followed by, up by Jesus casting out a demon, enabling a mute man to speak. In response to these miracles, Matthew records how those gathered responded. In verse 33, he writes, the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Such contrasting reactions to what Jesus has done. The crowd is amazed, and yet the Pharisees aren't even close to seeing the truth of who Jesus is. The Pharisees are the ones who are supposed to know the Scriptures. They're supposed to know that the Old Testament prophets, like the prophet Isaiah, predict that the Messiah would come and heal the blind and deaf-mute. Of all the people, you'd think that it would be these educated ones who would put two and two together and come away with four, but they don't. They're blind to God's word. They are blind to who Jesus really is. The blind men see who Jesus is, but the Pharisees are spiritually blinded to the reality that their long-awaited Savior is standing right there in front of them. Church, why did Jesus come? He came to save sinners. He came to save outcast sinners, those who are outcasts in their society from both religious and cultural perspectives. Now, maybe you're feeling like a bit of an outcast, whether it's because you just don't fit in naturally with those around you. Maybe there's people who think you've betrayed your upbringing. Maybe you've actually stuffed up. Maybe there is sin in your life that hasn't been dealt with and that's keeping you on the outer. Or if you're feeling like an outcast for whatever the reason, know this. Jesus came to save you. Will you return his embrace this morning? 
Jesus also came to save desperate sinners, those who have used up their time and energy and finances in looking for answers, trying every single avenue, and yet finding no answers. Maybe you're at the end of your tether. Maybe you're so desperate for something to change so that you can be made whole again. Well, Jesus came for you. He came to save you. Will you respond to him and put your faith in him this morning? Jesus also came to save blind sinners. Maybe you no longer see Jesus with the same clarity of vision with which you once saw him. Maybe you've lost sight of who he is, and so as a result, you don't really live by faith in him. Your life is not characterized by obedience to Jesus in the way that it once was or in the way that it should be. Maybe your heart has been so hardened by organized religion and numbed by tradition that like the Pharisees, you're completely missing the point as to who Jesus is and why he came. Jesus came to save you. Will you ask him to open your eyes so that you might see him for who he truly is this morning? Why did Jesus come? He came to save sinners. He came to save you and I. What glorious news that is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you that because of your son, you've provided us a means of salvation. Father, for those this morning who might be feeling like an outcast, for those who might be desperately searching for answers, desperately searching for salvation, for those who are blind to to who Jesus is this morning. Father, would you help us to see Jesus for who he truly is? Help us to understand the reason why he came. And Father, I pray that you would help us to turn to Jesus, to put our trust in him, knowing that he came to save sinners, sinners just like us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to be at work in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to keep trusting in Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you.